0: Episode four of the classic sports car. Will 2020 buying and selling trends follow the pattern established last year? One of the old classic sports car manufacturers is in financial trouble again. And we'll hear some interviews with participants from the 2019 San Diego British Car Day all ahead on this episode. Welcome to the Classic Sports Car, a tribute to the sporting classics of a bygone era. Welcome to another edition of the Classic Sports Car. I'm your host, Tom Dunn. I'm recording this episode in early March 2020, and just over a month ago, in late January, the first major auction of the year was held in Scottsdale, Arizona. I want to bring you some key results and updates from that auction. Now there's a number of auctions that take place in the classic sports car world throughout the year. And the show's not gonna take a lot of time and focus on every single one of those. But we will take some time to focus and highlight some of the key events that take place throughout the year. The Monterey Car Week that takes place in August is always very interesting to follow and get updates on. So we'll talk about that. And as I did in a previous podcast, typically at the end of the year, I'll kinda do a recap but I'd like to start the year and see if there's any new trends that are developing, if some of the patterns from last year are continuing to be present in the world of buying and selling classic sports cars. So let's take a look at the Scottsdale auction results. Total sales at Scottsdale were down just a few percentage points compared to last year's 2019 numbers of just over 250 million and just slightly down also from the year prior. So it seems that many collectors who don't have an immediate need to sell their car are kind of standing along the sidelines and seeing what the market is going to do. Is this a downward trend that's going to increase or continue? Is it going to remain flat? Are the prices going to slowly or gradually start increasing? So it's been a couple of years since we've seen some of the catastrophic increase in the value of a lot of cars, especially those at the very top end of the market. So we're seeing that area of the market, the multi-million dollar sales of the very rare and exotic, the Ferraris, some of the Porsches, a lot of the cars with a racing pedigree, not really having the success or having the results that we've seen from a few years past. And more cars than ever were offered this year in a no-reserve format which means whatever the highest bid is, that's the sale price. No reserve does not have a minimum bid that has to be met in order for the sale to take place. So even though we've got more cars this year being offered in a no reserve format, the actual sell-through rate was down with just 77% of the vehicles. And there were over 3,800 vehicles that went to auction this year. So less than 77% of them actually resulted in a sale. So that means 23% of the vehicles... Went back home to the garage of the person trying to sell them. This is a decline from 81% last year and 84% the previous year. So, once again, it looks like a lot of buyers are kind of taking that wait and see approach. This year's top seller wasn't a rare 1950s or 60s motorsport icon or some very rare and exotic pre war car, but it was a 1995 Ferrari F50 Coupe which sold for $3.2 million. Also down this year was the average sale price. In both 2018 and 2019, the average car sold was worth nearly $93,000. This year, it dropped to 81,534. Another indicator that a younger market in both buyers and cars being sold may be upon us are some of these results. A 1990 Toyota Supra Turbo with less than 100 miles on it sold for $88,000. And a 1974 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia, also with very low mileage, sold for $86,800. There was also a Triumph 1972 TR6, which sold for $55,000. Now, this may be a record or a TR6, or if not, it's very close to it. That result rings a bit close to home because it was just a couple years ago when I sold my 1972 TR6. Now I got nowhere near $55,000 for it. And I'm not quite sure how to react to this if I should be excited that the value of these cars is now starting to rise, or I should be a little saddened because maybe when I jump back in the market to try to buy another one, it's going to be a lot more expensive than it was 10 years ago when I bought mine. Sticking with some more financial news, one of the venerable classic sports car manufacturers, Aston Martin, is once again in financial trouble. So, Aston Martin is getting a $656 million bailout by the Canadian Lawrence Stroll, who's part owner of the Racing Point Formula One team. He's leading a group that's going to pay. $239 $239 million for just over 16% of the company. Aston Martin will then raise an additional $417 million through the issue of new shares. Aston Martin kind of rattled investors just about a month ago when they warned that its profit for 2019 is expected to fall by nearly half from a year earlier, despite heavy orders for its first ever SUV, the DBX. So Aston Martin is trying to follow some of the success that Porsche had when it launched its first SUV. Now, a number of years ago, when the Cayenne came to market, there was quite a bit of an uprage. A lot of people thought that Porsche, a traditional sports car manufacturer, should not be selling SUVs. But many also claim that the success of the sale at SUV is what's enabled Porsche to continue to make all these fantastic sports cars. And so you see a lot of other car manufacturers who had traditionally focused primarily on sports cars or sports and luxury cars now jumping into the SUV market, whether it be Jaguar or in this case, Aston Martin who launched the DBX, which my understanding has been fairly successful, but still hasn't brought the profit needed to sustain Aston Martin. They've lost close to $4 billion since October of 2018. Now Aston Martin in its 100 plus year life has been bankrupt seven times. In some other news, the Acura NSX, and the Mazda Miata are now considered classic sports cars. This from an article in CarsUK.net. So this is a British automotive publication, and I'll read you some of the article that they came out with recently. It goes, The term classic cars is banded around as a coverall term for any car which is desirable but not exactly brand new, covering anything from a 1920s Bentley blower to a 1970s Ford Escort and even more modern stuff like the 1990s McLaren F1. The Classic Car Authority, FIVA, that's the International Federation of Historic Vehicles, has quite clear rules about what constitutes a classic car, and one of those rules is that the car needs to be at least 30 years old to qualify. So with the new decade upon us, it means a new raft of cars now fall into the classic category. Tito Brester's FIVA president said, quote, There's no magic rule to say when a vehicle becomes a classic, but reaching 30 years of age is one of FIBA's clear criteria. So in 2020, we're delighted to welcome a whole new raft of 1990 classics to the fold as they celebrate their 30th birthday, thanks to their caring owners. Historic vehicles don't have to be hugely rare or valuable. The new classics range from supercars to city cars to motorcycles, but all are important milestones in the story of our motoring heritage, end quote. And then finishing up the article from Cars UK, the new classic cars include stuff like the original Honda NSX, so I guess in Britain it wasn't an Acura-badged car, it was the Honda-badged NSX, Mazda MX-5, and the Lamborghini Diablo, as well as more prosaic stuff like the Renault Clio and the Lotus Carlton. So there you go. New decade, new group of classic cars, this time reaching into the 90s. So I guess I'll have to expand the coverage of the podcast to include... Some more modern, classic sports cars. Now, back in fall of 2019, I had a chance to once again attend the San Diego British Car Day. Now, this is an annual event held every fall somewhere down along the shoreline of San Diego. While most of the cars that show up are classic, there are a few moderns that do appear. They've got the cars all lined up by make. And most of the owners are nearby, so it's a great chance to both see these incredible cars and also get a chance to chat and talk with the people who own or drive or work on them. This year was the 40th anniversary, and I saw cars there from Jaguar, Aston Martin, Austin Healey, Lotus, Triumph MG, Morgan, Bentley, Riley, Rolls-Royce, Sunbeam, Mini, and probably a few others that I'm forgetting. I had a chance to speak with a couple of owners, and we're going to hear their interviews in this podcast, and in the next episode, we'll hear a few more interviews from a couple other owners. I want to start off with an interview I had with Jay. Jay has a beautiful bright red 1962 Austin-Healey 3000 BT7. So Jay, tell me about your beautiful car here.
1: Well, it's a 62 uh, Austin-Healey 3000 BT7, and the BT7 uh, signifies that it's actually got two small seats in the back. Hardly an adult could sit in them, but they're two small seats uh, for for my grandkids. Three and five would fit in there. Um, I've had it uh, about three and a half years. I bought it from a fellow up in Costa Mesa who was being transferred to the Midwest and didn't want to take this beautiful car back to snow country. So he had it up for sale and uh, saw it up. at a. He he got together on a Saturday morning with something called Coffee and Cars, and they all show up in a little parking lot up in... uh, in the orange county area lake forest i believe and uh went up there saw it and made him an offer and bought it so why why in austin healy well uh i went to high school in the 60s mid-60s and uh, in orange county where i went to high school everybody was driving domestics everybody was crazy about a corvette or a mustang those were the two hot cars and i just always had a had a feel for Healy's. They, you know, they started building the three thousand in '59. They built them all the way through '67. And uh, I, as I've said before, I, you know, I, I don't know that I'm a real great car guy, but I think the Healy three thousand is the most beautiful car I've ever designed. It's just, uh, it, it's just gorgeous. It's a, the classic sports car, in my opinion. And uh, so, at this point in my life, I figured, why not? I deserve that. So.
0: What's it like to drive this out on the street?
1: Well, it's fun because I don't, uh, I did just put an overdrive in it here about a year ago, but before that I didn't have an overdrive. And and even at 60 or 65, it just, it was, it was tacking 3000 RPMs and it's just a little more. And I used to never take it on the freeway. I have a mechanic that's out at Gillespie Field and I'd go out uh, Friars Road to uh, Mission Gorge to Jackson to uh, whatever that street, anyway, come down Fletcher Parkway and get into El Cajon. And I'd never go on the freeway. It'd take me 50 minutes to get to his place, but that's, who cares? It, there weren't that many stop signs or traffic lights. So it was a, it was a nice drive, particularly on a, on a morning, you know, 9: 9, 9, 9.30 in the morning. Um, so I just, uh, it's just a car I've always liked.
0: And uh, as I say, I still think it's one of the prettiest cars I've ever seen. What's ownership like from a maintenance and upkeep standpoint? Well,
1: um, I've probably put less than uh, 2,000 miles on it in the three and a half years I've had it. Um, I've had no mechanical problems whatsoever. I had a transmission rebuild put in it, and I had little issues with the uh, the tachometer, but there's a couple of guys out in uh, in the North Park area that. Fixes the tack and the speedometer, and that gave me a little bit of problem, but not a big deal. Um, and, I, and I and mechanically, I don't do much to it at all. I just polish it. Uh, I've got a, a, a mechanic out at Gillespie Field, and then another German fella out in Ramona, and uh, they've done all the work on it. And um, I wouldn't say it's inexpensive to, to have a car like that worked on, but um, I, I kind of always say, knowing what I paid for it and knowing what I put in it would I be able to get all that back? And I think easily, I think I could easily. So it's uh, it's just self-indulgence.
0: It's just, uh, (laughs) at this point in my life, I deserve a toy, so. Any amusing or comical stories or adventures that this has been part of since you've had it?
1: Uh, No, it's just, uh, you know, I'm still at a point where, you know, you you can drive through any uh, commercial area and you get the thumbs up, the waves, the uh, the beautiful car comments coming from other drivers on the road. And uh, and that's just fun. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, don't, I don't mind telling you. It's just uh, it's nice to have everybody tell you what a beautiful car you have. So um, as they say, I'm at a point in my life where uh, I think I deserve that. So.
0: Jay, thank you so much for this okay. conversation.
1: All right. You bet, Tom.
0: Next up, we're going to hear from Serge, who has a 1972 Triumph TR6. Now this car hits close to home since this was actually my car for 10 years before I sold it to Surge just a couple of years ago. Now I bought this car in 2007 and it was literally in pieces. The previous owner had stripped it down and was intending to do a full restoration and fell on hard times and I bought it from him. And then over a 10 year period I had the engine rebuilt and the transmission, the rear end and also myself rebuilt the entire suspension, all the brakes put in new body mounts and so much more. The project then stalled, and as Serge will refer to in the interview, I felt it was better to let it go to someone who could finish it and get it back on the road than to have it languish in my garage for a few years longer. Now in some upcoming podcasts, I'll share more of my history with the ownership of the different cars that I've had. But right now, let's hear from Serge. So Serge, you got a beautiful TR6. Tell me a little bit about it well
2: i bought it from a very nice uh, fellow (laughs) that had it for 10 years and it was the uh, the second one in the restoration process and then uh, having six six kids i had too much uh, too much time or not enough time uh, to spend on the car and more with the kids so i ended up uh, buying the car from him and uh, i had it for two years now and i got it all Put it all together, and now it's finally on the road. And uh, it's been a really fun project, and uh, I learned a lot about it. And uh, it's always been uh, one of the cars I w- always uh, wanted That's to have. Right. That's all right. And well, well. Uh, <clears throat> it's been it's been r- great learning and uh, working ex- experience. Uh, and finally, I got I got it to run now, and uh, it's uh it's gonna be at my. Um, daughter's wedding it's gonna be the getaway car and uh, so she's very excited about it she's actually today she's uh, having um, a bright little shower in my house so it was perfect day uh, i'm a British car day and she is having the you know the a great day with all the girls and all the stuff that they do
0: so it's fun any specific or unique challenges you ran into with the uh, restoration and putting it all back together?
2: Uh, yeah, putting the engine back inside was, uh, was pretty tricky. Um, I, I was admiring the uh, engineering of it uh, and I think I had about an eighth of an inch to spare to slide it in, uh, which I was totally amazed. And uh, but, but got it in, I had to push it a little bit, but I <laughs> uh, got it in and, uh, <clears throat> and for, for the rest it was, well, uh, yeah, this, the, one of the, the big challenge was uh, replacing the electrical uh, wiring system. Um, you know, all the, the butt connector, uh, soldering and crimping and, and then, you know, figuring out the uh, schematic. It was pretty pretty good challenge but I, I, I like challenges, so um, I got it all done took took a few months but uh, there's lots of
0: wires <laughs> but got it all done so so why replace the wiring system in it
2: well when I got the car uh, and I looked at the uh, the wiring harness there was dangling and wires coming from everywhere and somewhere clipped off and I said there is no way that I'm gonna be able to retrace that. That's number one, and number two, I read a lot about the um, the bad reputation of uh, British car electrical system uh, made by Lucas, and so I decided, you know, the two combined was uh, uh, would be a disaster to try to to redo, you know, original. So. I did some research and uh, figured that w- one guy is a guru in in, in, in redesigning the uh, British car electrical system. So I ended up buying the system from him, and uh, uh, it works really well. But it was, yeah, that was a big challenge.
0: Yeah. So I know you've only driven it a few times. What's it like behind the wheel out on the road? Oh, I love it. It,
2: it feels great. And everybody is looking at the car, you know. They drive by and say, "Ah, oh, yeah, it's great. Good-looking car, and, um, and it's just just fun. And uh, I, I like the, the the sound of the engine roaring. And um, suspension is great. Uh, I mean, it's nothing like a, a new car. Uh, doesn't have you know power steering and power everything, but it's the old style. You know, that's that's what I love about it." It gives you a sense of freedom and just great, great feeling. And also, is the uh, the sense of accomplishment, which is you know big time, big time plus. You know, said I've done it. You know.
0: Took me two years to to get it here, but it's done. So very happy about it. Other than the wedding of your daughter, any big plans for it in the future?
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm Planning to go to you know several events and drive the car as as much as I can. Uh, when I when I uh, register for insurance, I he said, "How many miles are you going to drive the the car per year?" I didn't know really. I said, "Well, maybe fifteen hundred a year." No, I'm. I think I'm going to have to up that because <laughs> I
0: plan to drive it more. <laughs> Thank you, Serge, so much for this conversation. Best of luck with the, with the triumph. Our final interview is going to be with Malcolm. Now, Malcolm has a 1964 Jaguar E-Type Roadster. This car was spectacular. As he'll reference in the interview, you'll get a feel for the meticulous nature of the previous owner, plus a very comical instance that occurred to him when he first got it. Identify your car here and tell me a little bit about it. It's a
3: 1964 Series 1 Jaguar XKE or um, E-Type, open-top sports, so convertible. Um, It's in pretty nice condition. It's been rebuilt. um, And uh, the guy I got the car from owned it for over 30 years, uh, during which period he drove it for a total of about 150 miles. And most of that time he dismantled the car and... uh, was rebuilding it from knot and bolt all the way up and he he tried to be authentic with with the whole thing um part way through he realized that he hadn't used authentic uh nuts and bolts um they didn't have the right markings on the the head of the the bolt so he stripped it down again and replaced it with the with the correct ones so it was it was kind of a labor of love, and um, I'm the lucky recipient of it.
0: Now, what all have you done to it over the last couple of years? You've had it.
3: I've cleaned it. Um, I've done. I've done very little to it mechanically. I've done next to nothing. Um, I've done. I've replaced some seals. Um, put seals in when around the around the hood when they they were missing. I really haven't done very much to it at all. Changed the oil, um, but. Mechanically, not very much. I replaced the tires. Um, The tires that were on it were about 30-some years old. Um, They were a wider profile than than original, so I went back to the original skinny tires, um, and it drove totally differently after that.
0: What inspired you to acquire an E-Type?
3: I had a V12 E-Type when I lived in England in the... 90s and it was an awful car it, it was really it was really awful it was a, a a fixed head coupe um had an original factory um fabric sunroof and when the sunroof was open the exhaust cavitated round from the back of the car in through the roof i couldn't drive it more than about nine miles before i was reeking with exhaust and uh My wife refused to drive in the car with me. So I got rid of it, swore I'd never get another one. Moved to California. I got another one, but not the V12. And I I wanted to go early um, and I wanted a series one and I wanted something that was as original as as possible. So I was lucky I found this one just round the corner from me in Cardiff and from a guy who absolutely loved and cherished what he did to the extent that he's come and worked on the car with me after i acquired it a year after i acquired it he spent a day with me fiddling with it so that was great
0: so what's it like to drive the c-type out on the open road
3: it's an old car (laughs) the (coughs) excuse me the gearbox the gearbox is awful it's an old moss gearbox there's no synchromesh on first Uh, No matter how much you practice, you'll probably crunch the gears. Um, It's under geared, so it revs pretty pretty high on the freeway. Um, But I don't take it on the freeway very much. But it's just it's just a lot of fun to to be driving. And um, there's I mean this this is all just mechanical bits working together, and it's uh, there's no power anything. So it's just it's just a joy to drive it. But it's, um, it's not a relaxing drive, I would say.
0: Very involved from the driver's standpoint, then.
3: Very involved. I scared the life out of me the first time I drove it. Um, after I acquired it, I came up to a stop sign, and I stopped, and I was I was in first gear, and I pulled away, and I shot backwards. Um, first and reverse, there is no distinction between them they're right next to each other thank goodness there was nobody behind me because it was literally the first time I'd driven the car in my ownership so um, I don't burn the rubber when I'm heading off from a stop sign or uh, traffic lights because I want to make darn sure I'm in first gear and not reverse gear that that was that was a real scary moment for me and I've, I've been I've been really cautious ever since
0: Maybe we should look upon this as a public service announcement for anybody that pulls up behind a Jaguar E-Type. Give it some room to make sure it's going to go forward instead of back into your bumper once the light turns green. So thank you, Jay, Serge, and Malcolm for taking the time to speak with me and sharing with all of us some of the interesting tidbits and anecdotes of your ownership of your classic sports car. Thanks for listening to the show. For additional features, please visit the website at classicsportscar.com. Please join us again for another episode. Until then, I hope to see you out on the road in your own classic sports car.